Michael Jordan said, Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. Benjamin Franklin said, Without continual growth and progress, such words as improvement, achievement, and success have no meaning. John Wooden said, Things work out best for those who make the best of how things work out. Welcome to Make Shit Happen. This is episode number 116. Our guest today is Eugene Aledo. He is the founder and CEO of Bedgear. He is also the visionary behind the fast growth performance lifestyle brand that has revolutionized the traditional bedding industry. Eugene's story is such a great one. How he grew up from nothing. His father passed away at 15 years old and everything that has led him to bigger and better things. His growing up with his grandfather, you know, carving him to be a great salesperson and then him being a great salesperson leading him to where he's at today. Eugene, I, I had a chance to talk to Eugene before and after the interview and the man has wealth of knowledge and he's so, you know, so smart about things and the positivity that he, uh, you know, that, that, that he speaks of is, is contagious. Guys, this was a great, great interview. And I can't wait for you to hear this interview and enjoy as much as I did. So without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Eugene Aletto. Guys, exclusive furniture have 97% of the product in stock. That's correct. Exclusivefurniture.com or seven locations in Houston. If you are anywhere other than Houston, you can buy everything on exclusivefurniture.com. We'll have it shipped to you wherever your city or your state is at. Exclusivefurniture.com. We do offer financing, furniture protection plan, and 97% of the furniture is in stock, ready to be delivered to you within a few days it'll be at your house before you can even think about it guys visit exclusivefurniture.com for all your furniture needs Welcome to Make Shit Happen. Our guest today is Eugene Aledo. Eugene, thank you. You came straight from New York for this interview. And I appreciate it so much. Uh, just landed over here, and man, thank you. I, I want to thank you again for your time. You're welcome. It was uh, a long journey to get here, but it's something that I promised you over a year and a so ago. And watching your podcast and seeing this personality come out, it was such an attraction that I had to get on a plane and. Uh, brave the COVID just to come and see you. So <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Eugene, people are probably wondering, I've given a little intro of yours in the in the beginning, but people are still wondering, who is Eugene Aledo? So I know you today, you are the founder and the CEO of Bedgear. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but tell us a little bit, I know you are not always, you know, an entrepreneur. So I mean, growing up, tell me, tell me a little bit about you. Well, I've never done anything that I haven't been successful at. Everything I do, I'm crazy successful. That's how I got here. The reality is, is that we all know the same thing. We fail and we get up, we fail, we get up. And at some point you get up enough and you, you wake up and you look around and you realize what a journey you had. I think a lot of times when I look at my life, what's really in, is, is, is interesting to me is that if you're not, if you don't become into perspective soon enough, then you're working towards something and you're forgetting to really enjoy the journey. And you know, you'll hear it from entrepreneur after entrepreneur when that's that pivot, that moment where it's just aha, like, wait a minute, it's not 
getting to an end. It's really the beginning of a day and what great, as you call it, great shit can you actually do, right? So for me, you know, I, I think my journey started with a lot of, a lot of issues uh, in my family where my, my dad passed away when I was 15. I was the oldest of four. Um, my sister was only three with two kids in the middle. And if it wasn't for a strong mother, I, don't, I really don't know what life would be like. So we were taught never to be victims. So the day that my dad passed away, literally right on the street in front of my, me and my brother and my mom, my mom's a nurse, she tried to resuscitate him. It was a massive coronary at 49 years old. Um, I remember going to the hospital and sitting in the, the little chapel in our, in our, local, our local hospital and the, the priest and my mom came in with the doctor and told us that my dad had passed. And sitting here now at 50 plus years old, looking back at that, that, that experience really set me up for what a journey you see in front of you. So everybody looks at your successes, but they never realize where they come from. And a lot of people just think you get lucky. You know, you just see all these Insta famous people and everybody just thinks that, wow, it's just everybody's having a great time. The reality is, is that all that pain and all that suffering, you have two choices in life. You can either embrace it and it becomes who you are, or you can embrace it and it become who you are. And the only difference between those two statements is really, do you choose to be a victim or do you choose to empower yourself to become better? So that's really where my beginning started from. It's not a great business story, but it's truly where I, I believe I became that, that hyper-focused person that really could always get up and keep fighting. And that's really where it started. Well, that's that's a great story. So, so at 15 years old, you know, you, you know, you don't have now you don't have a father figure in your life, and your mom is a nurse, and with four kids, I'm sure she's working hard, you know, all the time. So, what did you do at 15? I mean, you know, you're going to school. I mean, you're the oldest brother. I mean, I mean, was, I mean, were y'all well to do? How how did that? Tell us a little bit more about that. I grew up in Hempstead, Long Island, which in my world was, I was Aletto from the ghetto. So my last name being Aletto, they used to call me and make fun of me because we lived in a community where it was apparently considered a ghetto, but not where we lived. Our street was pretty nice, but the surrounding area was pretty crappy. Uh, bikes getting stolen, you know, car tires getting taken off of our cars at night on jacks, you know, I grew up that way. It was just kind of normal. Yeah. And we had two German shepherds always in the house and they were our pets. But I came to recognize after I got older that these were more than just pets because we were one of the only houses that really didn't get robbed on the street. And I didn't grow up in a weird way in a bad neighborhood, but the surrounding neighborhoods were worse than where we were. Yeah. And so that experience, though, really gave me a sense of community. Um, our neighbors, we all kind of hung out together. Um, I had to convince my dad that I couldn't, I just didn't want to go to the, the local high school and begged him to go to Catholic school, which most, you know, 13 and 14 year olds aren't begging their kid, their, their dad to go to, to go to Catholic school. And what, why I share that with you is I think if you asked me at 20, if you asked me at 19, if you asked me even at probably 25, the same question that you're asking me, my answers would never be as interprospective. Because as you get older, which is hard for people to realize because they're not old yet, is that you, you start to recognize that what really has defined who you are starts so early. And what defines your business career, your personal, who you are, everything really does stem from those experiences at a young age. 
So I, I love to share these things with people because I hope that when, when people hear this that are maybe in their, eight, their 18 or 20 or 25, that they turn more into perspective. Because if you can turn on what your experiences are leading you towards, it's amazing how quicker you can get to your, to your fun part of the journey and, and not, not suffer through it. Because some people look, think that they have to suffer through these experiences mm-hmm. before they can become successful. So, so to me, I think the, the, the 15-year-old, I never became like the dad. My mom never put me in that position. Um, my mom... I never realized that we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, my dad died with $10,000 of a life insurance policy, which was enough to bury him. And my mom just kept her shit together. My grandparents moved in, her parents, she was an only child. And my grandfather, my Sicilian grandfather, would get up every morning at 80 years old, put a tie on and a big old cigar and a fedora on his hat and drive an, a, a big giant Cadillac and was was like, this amazing character, and he was the proverbial sales guy. And he really then helped, without knowing it, he helped craft my skill. I'm a great sales guy. And if you're a great salesperson, you can be a great marketer. Mm -hmm. If you're a great marketer, you can find products to market. But if you don't know how to sell, it's really, really hard to take a great idea and make it something and scale it. So my grandfather was that really big pinnacle moment in my life when he showed up uh, because he was a salesman, by tr- by just by his sheer nature, and I could talk hours about my grandfather. So I think what I would share with you on on the question, there there's no there's no pity party in my family. There was no worry about money um, until you had no money. It wasn't something we focused on. It wasn't about getting things. It was it was always just get up, go to school, make sure that you're a good person, be a gentleman, and that was sort of the the upbringing that I had around. That's pretty awesome. cool. So, um, you you know, now you finished school, and where did you go college at? So I was a shitty student. Uh, okay. When I say shitty, like really bad. So the thing that kept me going was sports. I was 258 pounds by my senior year of high school. I was not allowed to play any contact sports when my dad was living. So my dad's passing, I know this is going to sound a bit strange, if my dad was still alive, I wouldn't be sitting here with you today. So just another example of what you don't realize where your successes come from, they do come from these moments, these micro moments throughout your life that send you in a different direction. Getting on a football team was not a, was not a, I was not allowed. When I was younger, I had to play soccer. I sucked at soccer. I was an overweight. When I say overweight, I was 175 pounds by the time I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I tell you heavy, I was heavy like you can't believe. To the point where if you know anything about soccer, you have to be able to run. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the one time, and it's weird how many years ago it was, there was a game called Skins. So you had, we didn't have jerseys where we lived. You had to take your shirt off. So you, one person, next, next, next. So you have your team. Half of them are without shirts. The other half have shirts on. <clears throat> and I remember getting made fun of, of being like this big, overweight kid. Look, my mother's a good cook. What can I, you know, it's not my fault. So, Sicilian. Sicilian. We just eat. We eat, we eat, we eat. So going into high school, I was overweight. I had a bowl haircut. You know, my, I, my parents were not exactly, you know, Ralph Lauren and, and, uh, and his wife. So we had a bowl haircut, really bad looking clothes, and I had bad skin going into, going into high school. And when I walked in there, I was the biggest kid walking in. And I'll never forget being recruited. Hey, you should sign up for football. 
Oh, I'm not allowed to play football. Oh, what do you mean? So the coach literally called my mother. Now my dad's passed away. I was going into my into my yeah. freshman year. So my mom, she said, "What do you want to do?" I'm like, "I really want to try to play and get on the team." So I signed up. Biggest kid, you know, they put you on the line. You don't have to learn. You know, you yeah. learn the. And I was in heaven. It was like a sport made for me. And my personality came out. I, I learned about You're an offensive line or defensive line. I was both. I played both sides. I played. I played the entire game. I was the biggest kid. It was. It wasn't talent. It was size. And then slowly, I became really good at a sport, and I started feeling more confident. It's really what kept me in high school. I thought I had all kinds of issues. You know, I was grow, grew up slightly dyslexic, so it was hard for me to do spelling and writing. It was hard for me to communicate because I, my writing skills were so bad. And, you know, you get made fun of. You're overweight. You're, you know, you're on the, the bus in the, in the parking lot getting you know, taught how to read. And so I had very low self-esteem going into high school. And that really was my upbringing. And when I look back, you know, it's, I'm not even embarrassed by it. It's like I'm so excited to have such a start because I think it's really what, what it kind of frames who I am as a human being today. So that's how I went into high school. It was then, really sports. And then where, where did you go to college at? Yeah, so. Did, did you go to college? Did you finish I, college? I got, I got a, a, all of the above. Um, so in my junior year, I started getting recruited for football, which is not a very big thing on Long Island. But I was able to make it to all county, and I was also on the all-star team as a freshman, as a sophomore, junior, and senior. And in my senior year, I was at Hofstra University playing for the Catholic All-Star, where they play the city versus the Long Island. And I went down for a, a punt return, and when I, when I went to, to go make the tackle, I wound up with two knees, one meniscus and one ACL in my senior year, and I had already had made a commitment going down to Georgetown University, not because of grades, but they were building, they wanted to build a program, which they eventually dropped football in 1986, which was my, my year that I, I was graduating. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't, it, it, wasn't from, it wasn't more than fate. If that had happened, I would have gone to a, you know, a four-year degree school. I would have either failed or succeeded. Who knows where I would be today? But that turned into two surgeries and a local community college called Nass Nassau Community College, which I spelt incorrectly for many years until my business partner pointed it out. I, it looked like Nassua on my, on my LinkedIn account because I can't spell very well. Um, so I embraced that as a sucky thing that I, I'm not good at. And long story short is I went to Nass Nassau Community, got my associate's degree, but it allowed me to, to start to work on my Series 7. And I worked for Shearson Lehman, which was the old, you know, back in the day, it became Smith Barney. It was owned by Federal Express at the time. And I learned how to, how to be a broker, a retail broker. So I used to code call people and get them on the phone and try to make them buy stocks from, from the broker I was working for. Mm -hmm. All of that, again, I could all turns into who you are as a person, but all of that would not have happened if I had gone through with playing football and going to a four-year degree school. Right. And so for my associate's degree, I wound up going to a place called Nassau Tech, which is, um, I'm sorry, yeah, New York Tech, New York Tech University, which at the time wasn't a four-year degree. It's now, now it is. And I started to study political science because I had interest in becoming a, a lobbyist of all things because I love sales and I liked the things that I liked, and I wanted to push my agenda, and I thought that would have been an interesting path for me. Mm -hmm. So that was my, my high school, college years. And so, so you became a retail broker 
and you were selling stocks. And while I was in college, while you were in college. So what about after college? Uh, so that didn't last very long because I hated it. Um, I wound up uh, painting houses okay. uh, in high school as a part-time job with, a, with another high school guy. Um, so I wound up keeping that. So it's called E&J Painting. I still keep the corporation open even though I have to file every year because it's just nostalgia for me. Um, and while I, was, while, while I was trying to figure things out, I was still painting houses selling stock, which I really wasn't selling because I was only working for a broker, so I was getting paid hourly, <clears throat> but I hated it. It was the worst. And at the time, I was dating my first wife, Diana, who she and I were together since we're 13 years old, uh, still best friends to this day. We have three children together. Her father was in the, uh, was in the fabric business selling fabric to furniture companies mm -hmm. called Molden Mills. They made the polar fleece that we know today. Yeah. He was a very successful uh, VP of sales for many years. And I was telling him, you know, I really hated selling, you know, what stock wasn't going to be for me. He says, you know, you're a great sales guy. I know a lot of salespeople in the furniture business that really are not business-minded people. You seem to have a business mind. It would give you a great opportunity to learn a, a trade. And would you be interested? So I said, yeah, I'm always interested. So I was cleaning out his gutters, my girlfriend's house, soon to be wife yeah. at the age of like 15, 16, because I knew them then. And while I was in college, because of this connection, they got me a uh, interview with a company called Shaw Manufacturing, not the rug company, but it used to be an upholstery company in Tupelo, Mississippi. It's my first time ever on an airplane by myself without my parents. It's embarrassing, but it's the truth. And I flew to Tupelo, Mississippi for an interview. The interview went pretty smoothly. They had no business in New York. They've never shipped in New York. Back in the day, there was no cell phones, no GPS. You worked off of a yellow pages. And my sales pitch to him was Mr. Doty, who was the owner. I said, look, Mr. Doty, you got no business up in New York. What's the, what's the harm? It's a ten, you, know, you're gonna, you told me you're going to pay me a commission, and what's the harm? He said, what do you mean? I said, just give me the pictures and the swatches, and let me go see what I can do. And the guy's like, Okay, so he gave me pictures and swatches, and I flew back. I told my future father-in-law, I said, hey, they gave me the job. Now what? He's like, well, let's go to Levitt's Furniture. I'll never forget it. We went to Levitt's. He said, this is a sofa. This is traditional. This is a floral. This is a center match. And you know, being in the furniture business, it's a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got started in, in furniture while I was still finishing off college. And that's how I started. I just started working. You just went to the store and, they, you know, your father-in-law or ex-father-in-law told you this is what this is, this is what this is, this is what this is. And uh, and basically that's how you learned it while you were going for it. And you had all these swatches. You didn't know what to do with it. Nothing. Tell me, tell me, walk us to your first sales call. What did you do? How do you know I can remember my first sales call? I'm sure you do. <laughs> if, you, if you are keeping a, a corporation because it's nostalgia to you, I'm sure yeah. you remember your first sales call. I'll never forget. Well, I went... And I didn't know any better. Um, and I looked at something called Siemens Furniture, um, now known as Rooms to Go. Jeff and his dad, Morty Seaman, who taught really, his business really taught me the business in the beginning. And I noticed they had all these locations. They had maybe 30 at the time, all over Queens and Brooklyn. So I'm like, oh, they would be the right person to call because 
clearly they got more stores. Let me go start there. But you don't realize how hard it is to sell a big retailer yeah. who's never heard of you or the or the Company. the upholstery line, right? So I kept calling Mr. Rosenberg. Mr. Rosenberg, he was the buyer at the time, Alan Rosenberg, who unfortunately passed away many years ago, but somebody that really took a took a shot on me. And um, he never was nasty to me. He just said, not now, just keep trying. And I used to chase him all the time to try to get him to buy for me. So in the meantime, my father-in-law said, look, while you're chasing these big guys, you got to go out and make presentations to get good at it. So I'll never forget going to Mundial Furniture. I believe he had this, it was like a Cuban accent. Mm -hmm. And he was the most ornery, nasty guy. Like he scared the crap out of me. I was waiting my turn to go and see him. And he was just getting nasty. And almost like very like loud and boisterous. But I mustered up enough courage to go and wait my turn and I got in line and I it was my first sale he gave me an order but he gave me an order and I took the order even though I kind of knew that it wasn't exactly what I could do because the price list was a certain way but I let him pick his fabric and I gave him the price and then I went back home to try to place the order and the factory said you can't sell that so you got to do it this way and I'm like I gotta go back and see this guy I never went back because I was so afraid of the guy <clears throat> and years later, when his son took over the business, I had the opportunity to tell his son, um, Monday, they used to call him, I told his son the story that his dad was my first sale that I never actually shipped. But I learned so much from follow-up and the fact that you got to be able, when you, even when you make a mistake, you got to suck it up and okay. you got to go back. So that was a huge lesson for me as a go-forward plan. So Mund Mundial, Mundial Furniture? Mundial Furniture. Okay. And a Cuban guy, huh? Cuban Loud guy. Cuban guy. A lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. So so you go, so now you're selling this sofa, these sofas or whatever. What happens next for you, for Eugene Aletto? Oh, God. So um, I finally cracked some big customers. And you know, at this point, it's different lines and you know brands and lines that are not even in business today. And then my father-in-law, who was working with, with um, Molden Mills, went out of business. They mm -hmm. finally filed chapter 11 and went out of business. And so at this point, uh, Teddy, my stepfather said, you know, I got to go get a job. I'm going to go look around. I said, well, you got me running around. Let's, let's try something. So he, he and I joined forces. We got a couple of other furniture lines. You're talking about your father, -in -law. my father-in-law, Teddy, Teddy. And we, we took his you know, he knew a bunch of people people because they, at the time, you know, the fabric guys would go call on the big guy, you know, big furniture call companies to kind of pre-sell the fabric so that they could get placements with the manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So we used his network and my brawn, and I was driving, you know, behind windshields for eight hours up to Buffalo, New York and Boston, and I traveled everywhere, the whole Northeast, and I'd go out and sell, and he would he'd keep the major retailers, and I sold all the independents. And then business got really, really bad in, I want to say like in the early 2000s, we had that big, really decline in business. And our business was, was terrible. You know, it was we were commission. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I just can't survive off of this. And I'm like, you got to hold on. You got to hold on. And so he left and said, you're going to be okay. He says, you, you, got, you got this. And he went back to the furniture business. It was called Joan Fabrics at the time. And went back to fabrics, and I stayed with furniture. The company's called Furniture Marketing Associates. And the, the big pinnacle moment for me was, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I was on my own for the first time. 
You know, I've always had like my mom, even though I've done things on my own, you know, you have people in your life that are there. My grandfather, my mom, you know, now Teddy. And now I'm sitting by myself with all these swatches and all this product. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I just remember a moment. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm going to do the same thing I did yesterday. I've been doing it for, at this point, for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then after about two or three weeks, uh, another woman came into my life who is still with me to this day. 32 years later, she's been with me, Linda Baker. I call her Touchdown Maker because I would always sell and repent. I, I always overpromise on everything I do, but then I always overdeliver. So if I say something, I will it to happen. If a good salesperson, if you do something and never, ever follow through, back to the old Monday furniture, your reputation sucks. So I knew that I needed someone who could run point with the factories and the deliveries. So I hired Linda Baker. She came in. I had a set up an office. I just stayed on the road because that's what I was good at. And I would sell, bring her the orders. She'd processed all the orders. And I started to learn design of furniture, advertising, marketing. I became this, this little business on my own, which I was shocked at. But you start realizing you're doing everything like if you, were in the, if you had your own, your own business. I was... But I was essentially a middleman, so I got a chance to see everything from manufacturing to retailing to advertising. And I got really, really good at understanding the market and how to really analyze the consumer's behavior and so forth. So that was my first, that was my big, big move was, was hiring Linda Baker, who, like I said, she's still with me on this crazy journey that I'm on. Wow. So Linda has been with you for... 32 years, I want to say, 31 years. Wow. So... <clears throat> When did you first start a furniture business? So I would say uh, it would be 94, 95, 1995, around there. Wow. So a long time I was in the furniture business. And, you know, I think it, my professional career has taken tons of turns. You know, my kids look back now and they just see how we are living our lives. We have a relatively good lifestyle but they don't have any real context. You know, they, they know that I lost my, 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 my dad. They know, you know, my humble beginnings. But it doesn't, have the same, it doesn't have the same motivation or the same life lessons. You can't give somebody those things. Yeah. So, Eugene, let me ask you. So, you, you, you're now selling furniture back in 2000, 2001 when, when Teddy left. You got Linda Baker over there. Um, and then you're, you're selling furniture this time. When did you start or when did you decide to open bed gear. Another crazy story. So it wasn't that first moment. So it's, again, everything is about your journey. So all of these micro moments that I'm describing to you are what really starts, you start to recognize where you have talent and where you spend your time is where you have talent. Mm -hmm. When I played football, it was because I was a big dude. I was really good at, at a, being a pulling guard or, or a defensive, defensive guard. And when you become good at something, you want to become better at it, become obsessed, right? So selling for me was, was easy. Now what I realized is that I had the relationships, not because I was the best schmoozer or the coolest guy, because I had those salespeople that always I was competing for the buyer's time because the buyers always wanted to hang out with the fun people. I really wasn't the fun guy. I was the guy with the ideas. I'm always saying, what about this? What about that? And I'm always back and forth wanting to do more of the sharing of ideas. And so one of the things I learned when I was selling furniture is that a lot of the money was made off of selling furniture protection, selling these protection plants. 
So at the time, I was working for a company called Master Design, which was a big case, good company. And the, the president that came in, his name was Kevin O'Connor, um, he and I started a company together called Metro Guardian. And go, to this day, there's a company called Guardian. I became a distributor with Kevin. We opened up and we had the whole Northeast. And I was selling furniture protection to the people that I already had the furniture connections with. And we built this really cool business. And then Master Design, there's another crazy story, but Master Design, the Taiwanese owner embezzled money in Taiwan and essentially got shut down in America. And it was a terrible story because a lot of people put, Taiwanese put their heart and soul into the company and they lost tons of money and then us here, we lost the company. But one of the, one of the amazing things that came out of that is Kevin, Kevin O'Connor was actually in China when this guy blew himself up basically and got arrested and called me up and says, look, I don't know what the hell we're going to do, but I'm working on something. And what he was working on was to, to uh, Master Design's number one um, resource was a company called Lacquercraft. If you know today, Lacquercraft owns Craftmaster, Universal. All that is was bought bought after our success of a company called Legacy Classic Furniture. Mm-hmm. So we actually started Legacy Classic Furniture. I was the sales guy. Uh, Kevin was the president and CEO. And then we had uh, Jerry Sagardal, who was a sales manager, and and this guy Richard Mahulik, who was the was the operator. But by being part of that dynamic force of people, I learned and understood operations. I learned all these other parts of the business of importing. So I was going to China and designing furniture and picking out colors of, of stain for furniture with Kevin for years with, with furniture designers. So I started understanding the import business, understanding how to manufacture product, how to, how to bring product to market, understand margin. I didn't know this today. I, don't, I know this today, but as I said to you, by not being into perspective, it's amazing when I look back, I had all this knowledge that I hadn't, I didn't even realize, but I got it based off of just operating. Mm-hmm. So that was a big pivot, pivot. And Kevin, at that point, his wife had gotten sick and said, look, I can't do Legacy and Metro Guardian. I got to focus on Madeline. She had some, some, thank God she survived, but she had a brain tumor that they, they had to deal with. I took over the business full time and I built that business into what today is called bed gear. So what I learned from this experience was like, wait a minute, if the if furniture people make money from selling furniture protection and the bedding people were literally just selling this piece of garbage that they would put over the bed, which was like a plastic cover and they would give you a, a warranty. And so what I started to put together was sales process was broken in the in the mattress business. People were just buying mattresses on their back. They were buying pillows in Bed Bath and Macy's standing up. So I said, it's kind of barbaric when you think about it. What makes more sense is to buy a mattress and a pillow at the same time because you're testing out a bed. Why wouldn't you test out a pillow? It makes mm-hmm. no sense. So Sleepies was in our backyard. I had sold them furniture, you know, headboards and so forth. Um, and always spent time on the retail floor on the weekends. So I gave them the idea. I said, look, if I sell this really amazing product with this warranty, I think, we, I think the customers would really enjoy it. I think the salespeople could make good money, and I think we could all do well. And what, what got us to make the product is my son had allergies, of all things, my, my middle boy. 
And Alec was suffering from allergies for a long, long time. And when we went to the allergist, he said you, he's, got dust, he's got dust mites and bed, not bed bugs, but dust mites, which are in the bed. And that's where he's getting most of his allergies at night. They do these tests on him. So they sent us to a surgical supply store at the time to go get him a cover for his, our mattress. And it was the same crap that, that mattress companies sell in mattress stores. And it's, it, so I solved his problem. It worked immediately. He stopped sneezing and not waking up. But he woke up in a pool of sweat. So we started realizing that this is crazy. Like, wait a minute, I solved one problem, but he's got another problem. So we started to develop product that was moisture wicking, heat away from the body, but still protect the mattress and the sleeper. And that, again, it's years in the making, but all of these things coming together is what really gave me an understanding on how to scale the business. And the single most important piece are the people that you come across. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a lesson. Maybe those lessons are not just positive. Some of them are negative. Listen to everybody and then filter the good things and the bad things. Mm -hmm. And then you can avoid bad things in your life by listening to how others had bad things happen in their lives. So having all those experiences and all those people in my life is, is really what has empowered me to be in the position I'm in today. And the other great li life lesson, you're only as good as your next hire. Every person I've hired throughout my, my career has propelled me to be the person I am today. The amount of information and lessons that you can learn from your, in, your team members, your employees, your customers, it's amazing. And if you pay more attention to the people in your life and be more present, anybody can figure out how to have a great life journey. And that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons I take away. Wow. So today, Bedgear sells, what, 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 kind of, what is the, the array of product that they sell? So we started with the mattress protector. Mm -hmm. We then brought the pillows in, uh, which are built based off a of back, stomach, side, small, medium, large body type. Uh, the company is almost 60% female. And one of the things that we learned with, with the employees that we have was bra fitting is very similar to pillow fitting. So where you bra, have bra, bra like, <coughs> like women's, women's bras. Bra. Right? So a woman spent a lot of time really getting fit for a bra back in the day. I mean, they would go in and they'd get fit. Today, the great thing about the internet and the great thing about uh, manufacturing is it's a lot easier for a female to, to find the perfect fit. And what we realized is that people were buying one-size-fits-all pillow, one-size-fits-all mattress, one-size-fits-all, you name it. But if you look at how a woman gets fit for a bra, it's based off of a cup size and a back size. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think about a sleeper, it's their sleeping position and your back size as well, because you got to know small, medium, or large. So if you have two people that are sleeping on their side, and one's petite and one's large, how could you have the same pillow? And no matter how much of this memory foam that's out there, you can't pour a big enough piece of memory foam or a thin enough piece of memory foam for, for one type of memory foam to fit all of us. So everything that we've done is we've built products with the idea of making sure that we fit every guest every time. And that came from from our, our, our team members saying this is no different than bra fitting. So we took and built all of our products based off of that type of an algorithm. <clears throat> then we had millions of consumers we sold pillows to that said, oh my God, you got to be in the, in the mattress business. I'm like, no, we don't want to be in the mattress business. It's like doggy dog, you know, the mattress mafia, they'll squash you like a bug. And then all of a sudden all these 
bed in the box companies are just crushing the big, you know, old school people like Temper and Simmons and Surter. All of those things are like being blown up because customers don't no longer see those as the brands and they're seeing all these cooler kind of brands that are out there. But when they get it home, they're not always really that happy with it, which is why they have a high return rate when people go buy on the internet because people are realizing that one feel, one size doesn't suit everybody. Doesn't fit all. Just doesn't. So now we're seeing customers come back to stores and what we notice is like, wait a minute, if I am a side sleeper and I'm a, I'm a large person and my sleeping partner is tiny mm-hmm. and a back sleeper, why would I ever, I wouldn't wear the same shirt, I wouldn't wear the same pants, but I got to sleep on the same pillow in the mattress? That makes no sense. So bed, bed gear took the same pillow fitting and we designed a mattress that's built into a modular construction that allows you to choose your side using the same principles of a back stomach side or a small, medium, large, and we don't do it in a custom way. It's 100% built to inventory, and all you have to do is assemble the parts on delivery. And that's how we got into the mattress so business. So that's how you got in the mattress business. And you call that mattress today uh, M3. It's the M3. Right, right. And so what was the success of M3? And when people saw it, I mean, what did they think about it? They I mean, like, how can you do that with a spring? You've only done that in air mattress. So what did you think of that? Yeah. Did you thought that was the craziest idea? I mean, what did you think? I mean, what was your feelings? Well, it's taken us... Were you scared of failing? And, I mean, I'm still was? scared of failing because it, it hasn't done well <coughs> in every retailer that we've put it in. Um, retailers that embrace the concept of fitting the customer and giving them a unique experience compared to just taking them to the highest commission product or taking them to a product that is just what they know uh, and not putting the consumer first, those are the, those are the sales those are the sales that we lose. The ones that we gain are the, are the retailers that recognize that this is an opportunity to give the consumer a unique experience and give them something that's personalized because comfort comes from things that fit you. Comfort doesn't come from an average person. Nobody's average today. Today, we want to be inclusive and we want to empower people. So when we built this, this particular bed, it took five years and the idea came from Porsche. Uh, we met with the Porsche Consultant Group and they sent us to Stuttgart, Germany, my partner Shana and I. And when we spent the three days in the factory and we watched the way they built the 911, we said, this is how we have to build a bed. Because you go into a, a 911, you go into a Porsche store, you think you're customizing everything. The reality is it's a kit of parts. And when you order it at the Porsche dealer a car, you think you're saying, I want this, I want that, I want this. You can put whatever you want in the car. But all that, do- that order goes out the next day to the factory and all they do is place orders for all those parts and then they become an assembler of parts. And the engineering is what they're most famous for. So that's how we took the approach to, to, buy, to building the mattress and the pillow. It's a kit of parts. Got you. Now, Eugene, you know, when you were selling, you know, you said that people are buying mattresses laying on their backs and people are buying pillows standing on their feet at Walmart, Bed Bath & Beyond, wherever they're at, right? And you decided, well, you know, I want to want to bring this different concept. You went to talk to Sleepies, decided that you were going to do this. Did you think it was going to work? I mean, were you were you were you confident enough about it? 100%. And and what gave you that confidence? If you remember, I always overpromise and overdeliver. So going back to my furniture days, I would force the 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 manufacturers to build things 
to what I felt would sell for that retailer. So when you sell a Siemens and they're used to building packages, like Rooms to Go still does the package, the manufacturer I was selling to them w- would always overcharge them for the for the chair, mm-hmm. because the chair is where they an upholstery manufacturer makes back their margin. So they they sell the, the sofa at like zero, and they make their money on the the love seat, the ottoman, the chair. I'm going back 20 years ago. So for me, it was super important to realize that hey, if you want to sell Siemens furniture, you gotta you gotta hit a package price. Stop telling me how much the sofa is. So I willed that to happen. I would work with the manufacturer. So in the meantime, why I knew it would be successful is because it was already being successful. I just had to fit into their, into their success. So when I look at the customer at a Bed Bath or a Walmart or a Target standing in an aisle with no, with no help, trying to figure out, like, what pillow is for me? Like, what? This is crazy. But meanwhile, you could go... Get fit for a golf club, get fit for a golf club, get fit for a tennis racket, get fit for, for your suit, get fit for a bra, get fit for a, a sneaker. You get fit for everything. You get in your car, you put your seat back to the exact 18 ways, air pump with the bladder on the back, your legs get extended. Everywhere around us, we get fit for comfort, except for our sleeping environment. So I knew it was going to be successful. People so, under, underestimate their sleep still. I remember looking at the first time I was walking in Vegas market and this lady was given this shirt sleep sleep naked and I'm like oh you know basically caught my attention because I'm like sleep naked it was it was a cool shirt right so it made me stop I'm like who's going to buy a $199 pillow or right? a $250 or protector right and and I remember you know I'm like who will ever buy that and I mean you know today I know Bedgear sells Thousands of them, hundreds of thousands. We're in of them. twenty-six countries already. Right. Did you ever thought about it? Who will buy a hundred ninety-nine dollar, two hundred fifty dollars protector, two hundred ninety-nine dollar protector? Never. You know something, Sammy. You you underestimate consumption. When people want something, they find a way to get it. Well, I mean, I know that people are buying twelve hundred dollar phones. They used to be six. They used to be three. They used to be. It's the same and thing. And they stand in line. You know, to buy exactly. You know, people are buying thousand dollar shoes. I mean, you know. But tell me, that phone is it really just a phone? No, it's it's a, phone it's a lifeline, right? It's everything. It's a lifeline. It's your. It's how you get home. It's how you get an Uber. It's how you pay your bills. It's how you surf the internet. It's how you watch TV. Yeah. So the reason they pay twelve hundred bucks, and frankly, it's a lot more because you got to pay the service, right? So that twelve hundred dollar phone is probably costing you somewhere about thirty six to thirty five hundred bucks. A year? But you know, besides the phone, we know phone is more important. You know, let me tell you what blows my mind. People spend, don't want to spend money on their sleep and their pillows or, you know, something that recharges them for the next day. But they will spend money on other stuff. Like, I went to the mall uh, for Christmas and because of COVID and everything, you know, stores you can't enter. And I saw this long line and it was right next to each other. And there's like, about 100 people in one line and then about another 200 people on the other line. And I look and the line is outside Gucci and Louis Vuitton. And I'm like, you know, $5,000 purses, $2,000 purses. And I'm like, it, it was like it was like a moment that I was thinking, I'm like, people spend money on purses and shoes and stuff like that, but refuse to spend good amount of money and, you know, or refuse to spend good amount of time mm-hmm. to to learn what is a good sleep can do for them. And, and like you said... You know, they don't want to get fitted and they don't want to do this. And so how will we change that perspective, you know, people's perspective about sleeping versus 
what they can buy, materialistic things. The good news is we don't have to anymore. The 25 to 35-year-olds value their sleep. They value things differently than you and I do. And we always would say, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. We always said, you know, sleep, sleep? No, only, only, only lazy people sleep, right? Uh-huh. So sleep for, for the average Joe, the average person like, like you and I, you always cheated sleep. You thought cheating sleep meant you could have more time to achieve more. The reality is what, what the younger generation realizes that cheating sleep takes you further away from your dreams and ambition because the sleep in your life is what really is what allows you to be more awake and accomplish more in your life. So the good news is our kids, your kids, my kids, I have a 25, a 22, and an 18-year-old. Every one of those kids, they don't, they're not embarrassed that they sleep. They talk about it like it's a, a badge of honor. So that's the good news. The sad news is that our age group that is signed, you know, lined up to go buy Gucci and, and Louis Vuitton, those are, a lot of times people need to buy something to make themselves feel happy. When I get this, then I'll be happy. It's a, it's a, it's a problem in, con, in consumption. It's a problem here in America. And we're always looking to something else to be happy as opposed to just being happy. And so the best way to be happy is to get a great night's sleep. And the, when people can't sleep and they're miserable, they'll go out and they'll spend anything to get a good night's sleep. So I think between the younger generation helping us old people really open our eyes to the value of not just sleep, but the value of the world in which we live and how we need to protect who we are and what we are as a, as a society, as a, as a group of people. And I also think the fact that more people, because of anxiety and because of the phones and the screens and everything that we're watching, they're starting to have a hard time getting a good night's sleep. And they're starting to look. And the best place to look is the internet. And the best place to look is the internet because there you can provide the customer with amazing information as opposed to what's happened with some of our retail partners who have turned their back against great in-store experience and getting the sales team to be really focused on the sleep, not on just the mattress or the pillow independently. You know, and retailers, frankly, you know, one of the things that blows me away with exclusive furniture, to be perfectly honest with you, is that you recognize the value of being a great sales professional. You don't just put product on your floor. I watch you, you and your brother and your family. You're so everything you do is so painstakingly making sure that the guest is in the forefront of your mind. Not just getting an order, but making sure that it's the right product and checking on the product even when it goes out for delivery. Making sure that the guest does not leave your store unless they have a full sleep system. That's what it takes. You know, it, there's no reason that you can't have a line out your door. The problem is that there's not enough of retailers recognizing the value of sleep and how to present it. It's not the customer doesn't see the value. We all know if you have a shitty night's sleep, you have a shitty day. It's just that simple. Next day, it's, it's simple. Um, so today, Betgear, you, you, you started this Betgear company. You, you, you're an innovator. You, you know, took that risk, you know, bringing up a, a product that nobody had seen at this time, right? And, and I mean, I can say, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say, and I'm proud to say that, you know, today you sell probably more pillows in that price range than anybody does, right? Uh, or, or sheets and bed sheets and mattresses and stuff. How many people working for Bedgear today? So we are we're, we're well over a few hundred people at this point here in America. And then we have partnerships 
in other countries as well. So let's just say these couple of hundred people that work for you. You were growing up, or when I say growing up, growing up two bed gear. You only was one, two, three people manned, right? How do you? How did you learn to manage so many people now? Because I don't. What <laughs> I've learned is if you try to manage people, uh-huh. you wind up not only crazy, but you make people crazy. We have a very different culture at Bedgear. What I say is the only reason you get hired is because you have an opinion. If you don't have an opinion, I don't need you. So we try to find people that are very opinionated, and then we make sure that they recognize and we make sure the other employees, the other team members, all understand that everybody has to share their opinion. Mm-hmm. So why that's important is because when you, when you see something, we need you to say something. If you see a better product or a better way to manufacture the product or a better way to deliver the product or a better sales presentation and you're not sharing that, why do I need you, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm not going to be able to grow. I'm not going to be able to be better if you're not going to share with me how I can improve. When did I become the, the, the know-it-all? I only know what I know from the experiences I just gave you. Mm-hmm. And you probably had different experiences than me. You grew up in Pakistan when you were a kid. You got here when you were 15. Mm-hmm. You don't think that you see things differently than I do? Absolutely. Right? So that wouldn't I want to understand and learn from you? And that's the culture that we have. And I've learned that if you provide people with that, some people check and say, I'm out of here. I need to be told what to do. I need to know where the bathroom is. I need to, someone has to teach me the program. Someone has to do this. I didn't get the right computer. The, the computer you gave me doesn't have enough RAM, so I didn't get my work done. You hear it all. But the one thing that you'll hear from me mm-hmm. is that we're not going to tell you what to do. You need to tell us what to do. We're going to tell you the parameters. We're going to tell you the vision of the company. We're going to provide you with, the, with what we believe our opportunities are. But if you're not coming here with a strong opinion, then why do I need you? No, why do we need you? You That's know, just yeah. what so you, we've been so doing. you you want leaders, not followers. That's basically what you're saying. That's another whole story. So my my kids and I we debate leadership all the time, and you know, some I grew up not being what I would consider a leader. I don't think I was a follower. I was really lost. And I think when you're lost, you can if you stay lost long enough, you become a follower. If you recognize that you have some opinion or something to share, you become a leader. Mm-hmm. Leadership is not something that you can ask for. Leadership is not something that is given. If people aren't going to follow, and I get choked up because my son just wrote a, uh, an essay for college. And you don't think your kids are listening, right? So as you know, you got older kids. So as my kids get older, um, you start realizing that all the shit that you tell them <laughs> that goes in one ear and out the other, some of it sticks. And so he, he was writing this essay, and he was sharing in his essay about what I've said to my kids all the time is one, always be a gentleman to my, my kids. I said, it, and, always, and always be you know, a, a fantastic f- female to my daughter. And beyond that, I said, lead, leaders are not born. Leaders are not, are not people that wake up and tell people that they're leaders. You, can, you can't be a leader unless someone's willing to follow you. It's just that simple. So... My grandfather, which is why I bring this up and why I get emotional, he, he was so important in my life. And what he taught me at a young man was you fight for your beliefs until you have literally, even if there's just one person standing with you. As soon as everybody's left you and they're across the street, look behind you if you're alone, it's time to, 
fold up your idea and go join the others. Mm -hmm. But you fight. If you have any fight in you, you fight and you try to convince one person. If you can convince one person, you can <laughs> convince two. So leadership is having a sense of, of deep values and beliefs, consistent every day you wake up. And if that turns somebody on and they're willing to listen to you, you're now leading. It's, there's no secret. And I think the sad part is what people don't realize is that you can have bad bad intentions and bad beliefs and bad values and still be a leader, right? Which we've seen in, in, in life and in religion and in government and in, in companies. How do those people become leaders? Is because they convince people that their beliefs and people follow them. Mm -hmm. So the last piece of leadership that I always say is, I think of it as superheroes, which I love. I love Spider-Man, Superman. I'm a huge, I, love, I just love watching it. James Bond is my favorite. There's always a dark side to Batman because what makes you great is also what makes you terrible. So good leadership is the balance between good and evil, right? And I know it's hard to believe, but if you don't, if you start believing in your own shit and you don't invite people to provide you with their opinions, you can go dark pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So you got to make sure that you have people in your life that not only believe you, but share their opinion and call you out when you're full of shit. And that, to me, is how you guide yourself to have a great journey. To greatness. To greatness. Uh, that, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I mean, you know, and, and, and all of us. Uh, so, so thank you. Now, what is next for Bedgear and for Eugene Aletto? So I'm sure you get asked that question. I, I get asked, and, and frankly, every day... I do have a true north, and my true north is, is different than what I want to accomplish. I just want to get up, and I want to be happy. And why I say that is because if you don't choose happiness, mm -hmm. you wind up again where your biggest strengths become your biggest weakness. Because I have like this insatiable appetite, I want everything. I want to learn everything. I want to eat everything. I want to drink everything. I want everything. That's my personality. But that also gives you this, this, this level of anxiety because if you're not getting something every day, it's restlessness. And that can also become a huge distraction in your brain. So you, you mentioned that you, you meditate three times a day to just calm your brain. I, I relate to that because literally I'm, I'm constantly on the go. But that's what gives me happiness. So I wrestle with that to make sure that that doesn't get in the way of, of a good life. The things I want to accomplish is I want to be a voice of good community. I grew up in an incredible community that we stayed and worked together. And to me, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to foster good community because it starts at home. And, and what we see divide in this country, we see divide in the, in, in the, in the world, that is never going to be solved by politics. It's, ne it's never been solved by politics. How that gets solved is it starts at home. How you operate at home, how you operate in your community, and that's where it spreads from. So I'm involved in a couple of community projects where I'm helping define and develop some, some local towns that I've been, in, I've been living in. So I'm, I'm doing that. And then for Bedgear, what my main goal right now is that we have a huge opportunity in a dirty business. Our business is disgusting. We send back and throw shit in landfills. It's, it's staggering. All these mattresses and pillows that are sold online, 
they take back and they throw it in a landfill. There's not enough homeless shelters. There's not enough places to send all this foam. So think about this for a minute, Sammy. We're sucking oil out of the ground. This precious oil that we're hoping that will last for as long as we can find Mm -hmm. an alternative, right? And we're turning it into foam. Foam is an insulator. It actually makes you warm in bed. And then we, we put it into someone's home, so they overheat a lot of times on memory foam. And if they don't like it because it's too soft, it's too firm, it's not right, they just pick up the phone and say, take it back. Well, where do you think that goes? So we take this natural resource out of the ground, we turn it into foam, we put it in a box, we use, we use fossil fuel to drive it to your house on a UPS truck. You don't like it after 100 days. We then say, okay, send us the label and throw. we'll pick it up or we'll throw it out. And now it gets crushed and thrown into a landfill because you can't take foam and convert it back to oil. Mm-hmm. So not only are we wasting precious oil coming out of the ground, but then we're, we're throwing the shit in the ground and making landfill. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't even make sense. So what we looked at when we built all of our products is because we built it into modular pieces, if you're not happy with our mattress, we can replace the part. Not the whole mattress. It's like when your car tires go bad. You don't return the car. You replace the tires. All of these mattresses on the market, they literally, they glue them together. They put a cover on them. You can't replace a part. It's impossible. So after one year, two years, five years, it goes in a ground. The whole thing goes in a ground. So we are 100% focused on social compliance. We want to make sure that our CSR and everything that we focus on today going forward is how do we reduce the amount of natural resources that goes into our industry? And more importantly, how many of those natural resources do we throw into a dirty pile somewhere in the middle of the woods? It's, it's disgusting. If Patagonia could do it and help the, the, the clothing industry to give 1% of their of money back to help with the, this carbon footprint, and they thought that guy was crazy. I remember 25 years ago, they thought the head of Patagonia was a, was, was a psycho. Mm-hmm. Now, he's, now he's somebody we all... Like, oh my Aspire God, to he's be. like amazing, right? Yeah. So I want to be that guy. I want to, to me, I want to be that guy that takes a dirty industry and turns it, turn it on its head so we become more innovative with our products and the raw materials that go into our products so that we don't waste anything. It's stupid. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so, so that's, that's why you, push. that's why y'all developed the M3. So if someone say, I don't like the firm, you just give them a new mechanism or, you know, basically. Exactly. Uh, a new suspension. New chassis, new uh, suspension. So, I mean, that's what you call a suspension because you went to Porsche to go learn this. Exactly. So you named it, named it suspension, exactly. and, uh, which is, which is, which is cool, which is a cool idea. And, uh, I mean, we have to save the environment. We have a, you know, we have a duty to, to save the environment. Well, even if we don't save it, why don't we just not abuse it? Abuse it. <laughs> even if you think that there's no global warming, I always say, you know, to Shane and I, she and I have these philosophical conversations. I refuse to debate Scientists that say there's no global warming and scientists that say that there is. And you can say you're living and you can see it. But I don't know what happened three billion years ago. I don't know what happened ice ages and volcanic and dinosaurs disappeared for a reason. And this, I have no idea. So here's what I decide. I'm not a scientist. If I could use less and still live a great life mm-hmm. and not put all that crap in the ground, why would you not Why choose you to not do that? Do so let's let's not even debate global warming. That's that's absolutely correct. Now, now you know pillows, mattresses, mattress protectors, sheets. You know sheets and and you know now mattresses too. Like you know d- different mattresses that can be breaking down, broken down into parts. 
that's what that's what you're call that's what you are mostly focused on. We understand your your philosophy about leadership and everything. I want to ask you, besides moving away from business as a, as a personal thing, you said happy and happiness a couple of times, mm-hmm. right? What does true happiness really mean to you, and why is it important? So my my definition of happiness is is I shared I said you know getting up every morning and and being being happy. Um, happiness to me is not being satisfied. So it's a bit of a double, you know, double entendre. I think people that look to be, I, I can't speak for people, I can speak for myself, right? So I think what I've learned is that when you look to be satisfied, it's like it's done. It's like finishing a good meal. Right? It's, ah, I'm satisfied. So to me, if you're constantly in this, this spiral of looking for satisfaction, so that you can be happy buying that purse, getting that new car, and and I laugh because my I have a twelve year old Yukon that's falling apart, and a third and a ten year old Outback Subaru, and I have to get a new car, and I'm driving, I'm driving people crazy because I've been shopping for months now. <laughs> why? And I only buy used, by the way. I won't buy a new car because um, I like to save money, and but what I realize is I don't like to just save money because I'm. I'm going to buy a nice car, so maybe I'm saving 10 grand, you know, over five years. But the journey and the, the ability to go and know that I got a good deal. And, and in the satisfaction I realize on this new car for me, and I put this in because there's context around this, it's not getting the car and having that moment behind the wheel that gives me the satisfaction. What gives me the satisfaction is earning the car. And not when I mean earn, not just the money that I earned to buy the car, but earning the car. So everything to me has to have some sort of an experience or a journey associated with it, even if it's spending money. So happiness to me is is not being satisfied where you just go to a dealer, pay the money, and be done. That's that's I'm satisfied. I need a car, I bought a car. My satisfaction, my 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 happiness doesn't come from the from the, the purchase of a vehicle. My satisfaction comes from the journey and the experience behind shopping for it and paying for it. So I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't express what other people's happinesses are, but I find that that is more obtainable because that journey, a lot of times I find people look at that as the struggle to be satisfied, the struggle to be happy, how to pay for something, how do I get that? And they focus on getting it and then after a few months, the newness is off of it. So what am I supposed to be happy the next time? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, an, it's an ending spiral, right? So when you took me around the warehouse today and showed me your warehouse and, and introduced me to the personnel and the family that's in the building, you know, yeah, you, you, ma- you make a good living. But if you now look back after all these years of hard work, what was more satisfying to you? Taking me around the building and showing me the people and the and your amazing the drivers that deliver happiness on those on those deliveries and the ability for them to feed their families and do well by delivering furniture to people's homes is that not satisfying to you yeah right but is the satisfaction come from getting something or did that happiness is that happiness is seeing other people happy and being being grateful that you are able to provide people with that level of happiness and that's where I define my happiness. That's that is that is so great. Now, there's a couple of things that I, I you know, 
I'm coming towards the end of the the interview, and I ask everybody this question. But before I uh, I ask you this question, I think I want to ask you one more question. And you know, I, I I believe I'm a true believer of happiness. I, I truly believe, like, and I tell this to my employees, tell this to to people who, who I come in touch with. You got to be happy in whatever you do, right? Because if you're not happy working at exclusive furniture or a bed care or any job you're at, then you're just not going to be happy. If you're not happy living at the place where you live at, whatever it is, you might pay $10,000 rent over there. If you're not happy, mm-hmm. it's worthless, right? It's even shittier than living at a $1,000 uh, place. So happiness is, you know, means everything. But at the same time, I always tell everybody, humility is very important because we all, you know, <laughs> and I don't want to mix religion with it, but, you know, they say you came from you came from dirt and you're going to go into dirt, right? Yep. Nothing else will matter is what you're going to leave out here. What do you think about humility? What is your meaning? And mm. do you think it's important? Do you think, why is it important? So when Bedgear was growing, we struggled in for about two and a half years finding people that really were happy at Bedgear. So I, this this rings well for me. And we were small enough where I could interview. Nobody knew I was doing it, but I interviewed everybody. Not in a formal way, but I made my rounds, if you will, here at both at the New York corporate office as well as Rock Hill, which is where our factory and warehouse is today for the East Coast. And my search was to find people and why they were still with me from 30 years to 20 years to 10 years because most of the people in my life have been with me my entire journey. And I was trying to find a way to figure out why are so many people happy and show up every day and follow this crazy person into battle. And then why, are they, why in the last whatever years it was were people you know, unhappy and either being let go or, or leaving on their own? And I discovered like the most amazing thing in this journey of interviewing people. It wasn't the people that were there. It was the contrast of the people that weren't there. So we defined our commitment to what we everybody calls culture. You're not a cultural fit. It's a cop-out. It's complete bullshit. Because nobody can really define a culture. You know, they put a mission statement, a vision statement. Everybody does the same crap. We have four words. We now have five because I have this amazing HR director, and she ha- always has to have the last word, so she added a word to it. The four words that we started with, humble, hungry, curious, and clever. And the reason that we landed on those four words is because everybody that's in our company has a high dose of those four words. They're not all perfect, including myself, but each of us carry that as a, bad, a badge of courage. The ones that, that are no longer with us would struggle in f- one of those four categories. The single biggest problem out of those four categories, the one that you can't struggle with the most, is humility. Humility is not going to church or feeding the poor in our company. Humility isn't being an amazing person to a certain group of people and then, an, and then nasty to other people. It has nothing to do with any of that. Humility defined for Bedgear is your ability to embrace the suck. And what I mean by that is we don't know everything. It goes back to opinions. If you come in and you yeah, no problem, yeah, no problem, and then you go and scru- you know, scramble to get something done because you're not willing to say it's a problem, that's, that's a lack of humility. If you're going to you know, smile, and mean, meanwhile your smile means basically go you know, F yourself, mm-hmm. that's not a sense of humility. 
If you're going to walk around with a chip on your shoulder, or you think you know better and nobody's listening to you, but you're not willing to communicate and give your opinion out in public, if you're not being willing to say, hey, that was, that's not going to work, and you're not being willing to have like a, like a family dinner kind of an argument, you have a, a, you're going to have a hard time in our company. People in our company are going to call you out on your shit. And you know what you do? You have, a, you have an open dialogue about it, and it's corrective, it's helpful, because if you don't get corrective criticism on, on ideas and, 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 and where things are going, how are you ever going to know? If everybody yeah. around you, you want just people that love you every day, how are you going to get better? Exactly. So humility for us is the ability to embrace the suck. And the more you learn, I look at, I get our wow chat, I go through thousands of consumers' voices. You know, they don't like this, they don't like that, this is a problem. Because remember, sleep is personal. If you get fit for a pillow and it was the wrong size, should I torture you and not and not take it back? If you bought a pair of sneakers and you bought it you bought it without trying them on or you didn't go running on them and they happen to be narrower narrow narrower than the one that you expected, what do you think Nike's going to do? They're going to take care of you. Yeah. They they want you to be comfortable. So we understand that when we don't always get it right as a company. So how could you always get it right as a person? Because a person is the company. Mm-hmm. It's it's not independent. Absolutely. So humility is a big, big, important piece. Big, perfect. Last question of the, uh, that I ask everybody. Uh, let's just say this is 20, 30, 40 years from today. You, you happen to live 100 years old. And everything that you've done, any podcast, any YouTube videos, any content, any books you wrote, everything is gone. And it's your last day and you're about to meet your creator. And they come in the room and they say, Eugene, write three things. There's a pen and a paper. Write three things that you want to leave for your future generation, your future world, how to live life. What is your three truces, you know, live life, how you should be, or whatever it, whatever it may be. Your three truces, your three key to grace, greatness, your three things that you Got can it. leave with the world. What will it be? Okay. So I thought you were going to say if I was on a deserted island with... With my, who would I choose to, to be on a deserted island with? Those I have, those answers are like this. <laughs> They're right there. <laughs> um, but putting the joke aside, I would leave you with, you know, and this is something I've shared in many coaching sessions um, with not just my kids, but, but kids that I coach. Uh, I've, I've been a coach for lacrosse for many years in our, our local town, and I love to mentor young college students and high school students in our business as interns. And what I say to everybody, and I mean this, is that life is filled with chances and choices. The decisions that we make surrounding those chances and choices define who we become as, as, our, as our life journey. Because everybody is given a chance. Everybody is given a choice. What you decide, because it's a free will, what you decide to do with those chances and those choices will define who you become as a human being. And that, to me, says it all. Because if you think about your life, you could go left, you could go right. You could stand still and get run over. It's really up to you. So if, if you, if you deep, deep dive into my psyche and you think of the experiences I had of losing a parent, my mother, my mother almost losing the house to not paying her taxes, and all the things that I've lived through, And never once did my mother ever, ever be a victim. She kept going. She never, she never stopped. And her choices and the chances that she continued to take, even though the odds were against her, 
were all positive, and when they, when, they were, when they were bad decisions, she quickly said it was a mistake, and she moved on to the other decision. And if people would be more focused and more into perspective on the decisions that they make and be more aware of the chances that we're given mm-hmm. and the choices that we have and keep those, op- those options open, you can have an amazing, happy journey. It's just that simple. That's awesome. It's amazing. That's all I got. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for coming and joining this with us. This was one of a great, it was a heck of an interview. Thank I you for sharing it. so much. Thanks for being open. Eugene, thank you for donating your time to me. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. And I hope you learned a lot as much as I did from this interview. Please share this with uh, someone who might need to hear it, a friend, a co-worker. Spread the word about Make Shit Happen podcast. Please like us and subscribe us. If you uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and review us. Also, as those rating and reviews are super important for us. Uh, guys, please, without you, we can't spread the platform. We can't spread the Make Shit Happen podcast. So, that you know, I, I depend on you to do so. Now let's go out there and make shit happen.